When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply. I listen to podcasts all the time and it came up as a recommended and it's his picture and I did not know him from Adam. He did not look like that on the day at all. I remember the first episode I still didn't cotton on to what I was listening to and I went, oh my God, that's the guy. That's the fella. When we started making I'm Not Here to Hurt You, it wasn't clear where the story would go. Obviously, we knew the basics of John O'Hegarty's crimes and the tragedy of Roger Handy's death. But as you'll know from listening, putting all the facts together was time consuming. The reaction to the podcast has been much greater than we expected. I think part of the reason for that is that people have this sense of all news is local. They've been able to identify with some of the key moments, such as the bicycle accident on Bagot Street in the heart of Dublin, or the locations of robberies across Delorgan, Ratmines, Balls Bridge and elsewhere. But it's been much bigger than that too. People have listened in more than 100 countries, and I can only guess that they've been intrigued by the idea of a highly educated man switching academia for a life of crime as Ireland's most polite bank robber. The story hasn't ended either. One of the things we always felt was missing was the view from the other side of the counter, the voice of a person best placed to describe John O'Hegarty's approach to robberies. Remember, he was a heavy drug user at the time and openly admits that some of his memories are a little bit sketchy. A lot of people have reached out with their own thoughts on the story. But one caught my eye and led myself and sound engineer John to pack the car for a trip Hello. to the Midlands. Where we're going? Uh, fair idea. Lovely. Head for the Midlands. So this woman we're going to see, Aoife, I noticed that she had commented on Apple under the podcast saying that she found it really interesting because she was starting to understand the story from a different perspective. And that struck me because that suggested she had a perspective to start with, whereas most people... I've spoken to since the podcast was launched had never actually heard the story in the first place and then she responded to the call out that we put on the end of episode three which was the episode that focused very much on the bank robberies and you might remember that was the day John recalls seeing what he twigged as an undercover cop in the coffee shop across the road he said that the guard wasn't drinking any coffee and immediately twigged that was a bit off but decided to go ahead with it anyway he claimed it was his way of handing himself in and at that stage he was on bank number 14 so he he wanted to be stopped so I'm intrigued to hear what this woman has to say in terms of her memory versus John's because we know at different stages that well John's recollection is it's pretty good um, there are gaps because he was so dependent on drugs at the time. So it'll be fascinating to see what Aoife has to tell us when we, we get down to leash. You good? All right, Hi, Kevin. 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 How's it going? Kevin, nice to meet you. Yeah, Hi. John, lovely to meet Hi, you. John. It's a bit of a we landed in a housing estate outside Port Leash that can best be described as a maze 
but eventually found the home of Aoife Whelan. Aoife's a mother of two who invited us in for a chat. The kids were out, but you might occasionally hear her golden retriever Tiffer trying to get in on the conversation. She had a string of questions for us about John and the background to the podcast before we finally got to hear her own version of events. Aoife was just 19 and not long in her job at Ulster Bank in Ranla when she came face to face with John O'Hegarty. She had started working as a teller in the bank in September 2004 and it was only a few weeks later that John targeted the branch for what was an ill-fated robbery. The day, I think, was like a Thursday. It was always busy, like, from morning, from like the 10 o'clock on. And then from about half four, it would get very, very quiet. So you'd only have one or two people in. It was later in the day. There was only one other teller on with me and she was foreign exchange. So we were actually at the opposite ends of the desk to each other. I was with a lady. She was older and I noticed a guy walking in. And he stood and cute. And I remember thinking, he's really odd. And I knew he looked really odd. From what I remember, he had the flat caps. And I thought he was wearing, have you ever seen them ones that you might see on Patrick's Day? That's like a flat cap with like the orange kind of hair. Like I thought that's what he had on. And I thought, why is your man wearing that in the branch? John was wearing the hat because his disguise had helped him get away with 13 previous robberies. Aoife suggests that by the time he got to number 14, he wasn't as meticulous in his preparation. And I think that's possible, given that based on John's own story, he was now deep into his use of drugs. My real stroke of genius allegedly was a hat. I went to a wig shop off Grafton Street and sewed, a, a, sewed hair into it so it looked like it was in a ponytail. And I collected beard shavings from my own beard so they would look natural. Can't remember how I put them on. Probably used something that was in the bathroom to just make them stick that the, the girlfriend had in the, the cupboard. And created what looked like a beard so that when I walked out of the bank, I could rub my face and the beard would disappear. The hat would come off so I'd go from a long-haired guy with a ponytail to a, a skinhead or shaven head. And obviously the uniform would come off or whatever disguise I was wearing and I would be somebody very, very different. The more I was kind of looking at him, the more I thought, he's not right. You know, it was just really odd. He had like a messenger bag across him. And I was counting out and I was really conscious counting out the money to this lady. And I remember counting out really slowly being like, oh God, please don't come to me. And when she finished with me, you know, you have like a wee, like a sign that'll say like, tell her closed. I picked it up and I put it down because what was in my head was I'm not dealing with him because I didn't know what to expect. So when he went to walk forward, he stopped when he saw it and he waited for the other girl who was on the desk and she called him ahead like, next please. And I remember sitting there, I had nobody in front of me and watching. As I was looking at her, I knew something was wrong, but she jumped off the chair. And when she jumped off the chair and came towards me, I knew like, okay, something's happening. Again, it's fascinating to see the story from both sides of that counter. It feels like there might have been a bit of a swan effect at play. The girls appeared calm on the surface, but underneath the cool exterior, they were panicked. There was a girl on the end, came out and said whatever I usually say. And I, I know this time I had mentioned something, I said something like, no dye packs. And I watched her put all the money into the bag. 
she didn't say anything to me. She didn't look startled. She didn't look anything. The moment she, uh, I, I twigged that, the moment that realisation, I said, OK, I'm done. This is a setup. This is a way to orchestrate it. There should be a natural reaction there. I think he made a comment that he felt like there was something different in the branch on the day that maybe we knew. We had a clue. Absolutely no idea. I was probably very cool out. Colleague who was with me, she was really cool out when I think about it. I have two children now. I'm wondering what I feel differently with two kids at home than what I was feeling when I was 19. And I remember her saying to me, like, speaking really quickly. It was it was kind of like a mumbled and she was going, uh, he has gone, he's robbing me. He's he's robbing me and he has gone. I opened my drawer and your drawers are divided into different note sections. And she started grabbing and I had a smoke and die in my drawer. And I remember looking at it going, oh God, and lifting the bundles out and firing them at her. So she gave them out to him. I had already hit the button because you have a, a little panic button that alerts that you're in a raid. She went back up to him. And I have this memory of him going, thanks, or thanks very much, or because she was taken aback by him saying thanks. And he left, um, but he did not seem like he was in a hurry or in a rush or anything. Like he just seemed so calm and cool out. But I suppose with the benefit of hindsight, he was a professional at that. That was his job then. At the time, branches still had like porters, a man who would come out and like open and close the door and bring in the newspaper and that kind of thing. And I remember he ran out and he closed the doors. I remember it was really loud outside. There was like loads of noise. It was nearly like a commotion. Raised voices, that kind of shouting. And... It was like knocking on the door, banging on the door, whatever. And the porter went out and opened the door. And it was the two detectives who had been outside, who were with him. I'd love to know if the story's true, but I have this idea in my head that this story is true. I was told it, is that the two guys who were arrested him on the day were driving an unmarked vehicle. And I believe they parked on like Randall Avenue. So when they went to put him back into the car, they couldn't put him into the car because the car was lamp, so they had to wait for another car to come down and they brought him back inside the branch because they couldn't let him stand outside the smoke and dye had gone off he was purple I think there was a bit of purple on them it's not inconspicuous like it's very obvious when something like that happens so they had to bring him back in and stand him back into the branch and I know afterwards the bank they organised like a, a session with maybe a therapist or a counsellor and I remember coming in and her doing the session with us but I remember doing the counselling and being like, God, he was okay. Like, he was okay. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't, you know, he didn't feel like you were in imminent danger. I think as well, what helped with that is they told us immediately, that's not a real gun, it's an imitation. Was there a struggle at that point or did he give himself up or what was happening? No, as far as I remember, he was, he was actually quite calm. I think he said, sorry, girls. Something to that effect. He had his head down. He didn't speak. I think at that stage, probably the detectives were quite delighted. Like they were top of the world. They had him. Do you know they were waiting on him and they had him? And I remember being like, oh God, he's back in. But at that stage, like 
protocol kind of kicks in in the branch. So it gets very busy. And I remember being told the branch manager coming out to me and the first thing she said was, you need to ring whoever you need to ring, let them know this is after happening because there's a fear maybe that it might be on the news. And then maybe you'd have a family member who hasn't heard. So I remember ringing my mother to say, Mama, you know, the branch is after been raided. And I hadn't been in the bank that long. You know, I remember it being like, is everything okay? And I'm trying to explain to her, it was fine because it wasn't what they train you for. They train you for a scenario. And that was not that scenario. It's not the noise and the violence and that kind of thing. That's not what happened. And I remember saying to her, like, I I feel fine. I feel okay." And I remember that night, like we went out, I think we might have been Smiths and Randall maybe. And, you know, you have drinks and, you know, people come down, maybe even people from other branches. And I think people from maybe business banking because they were upstairs, they all come down and everybody convenes. You have a bit of support. You know, you kind of, you don't talk about it. You're encouraged not to be chatting about it. You can't be sitting in the pub like having a chin wag about what happened, but you're encouraged to kind of just be with people. And I was living on my own at the time. And I remember they were like, you'll be all right going home. Yeah, I'm fine. And I was like, I felt fine going home. And I feel like I felt fine because I knew he was gone and they had him. And that he wasn't a threat, like he wasn't coming back and he wasn't going to be looking for the girls who were on the desk because he didn't get his money that day. So I didn't feel like that kind of fear. And it was a couple of months, maybe less, that... We were raided again and it was so different. Like it was really, really different. They were shouting and roaring. They did not queue like he, he, they did not queue. They bypassed that queue and they shouted and they banged stuff. And it's a lot more aggressive. But I just remember having real fear that night. The day that John came in, it was just a different feeling. At the time, the porter who was in the branch, he used to go for his lunch in Stevens Green every day. And I remember coming back one day from Stevens Green saying, oh, that boy who robbed the bank, he was in court um, and he had a drug problem, but no background. Like there wasn't, there was nothing to say, you know, what happened to him after, where he went, how many years he got, none of it. I had no backstory on him. I don't know whether it would have changed my feelings on the day if somebody came to me on the day and said, look, he has a really, you know, wild story as to how he ended up in this branch today. I don't know whether I would be sympathetic to him or whatever. I know that I was told when they arrested him, he had a bag with him. And I remember the little bag he had because it was across him. And he had like bank straps. So when you work in the bank and you have different bundles of different denominations, you get straps for them to wrap them and they're individualized to each bank. And he had bank straps from loads of locations, over 10 different locations that were still in the bag. I remember thinking, God, like he's gotten away with it all those times. And this is the time he was picked up. Like I, I just thought that was really wild. They do a lot of training with you for different scenarios when you work in the bank Um, And obviously one of them is you have to be so vigilant and you have to be looking around for things you feel are maybe out of place or people you see regularly or whatever. And I was living in Ranla, so I would walk up the road, head to Coffee Society, get my order, go across the road into work every day. 
And I was told after that the two detectives who arrested him on the day had been there for quite a while in Coffee Society. So they were waiting on him. And I remember, I remember feeling really stupid. Like, how did I not pick up on that? Because even when John tells the story, he says that he spotted them on his way in, that he could pick them out. And I went up to the Ulster Bank in Ranala and there's a cafe across the road with a, a gentleman sitting outside, I think I was, I was saying to you. He was sitting there with a, a newspaper and no coffee and immediately I, I tweaked him as a guard and I said, okay. <laughs> okay, go and do it anyway. It sounds to me a little bit like it stood out to you more because he wasn't aggressive or didn't use violence that you actually have a better memory of this yeah. because it was less impactful. Most people, if they're going to rob a bank, they want to get in and get out and they don't want to stick around. And I suppose he cute. So you don't meet a bank robber who stands in a queue. Like that's not something that would raise alarm bells. Again, it was the hat that gave him away on the day. It was it was the hat. Like nobody comes in wearing the hat with the fake hair. And it was really obvious that's fake hair. You know, he was saying that my colleague who was with me on the day that she was fine. I remember her stood beside me when she was in the drawer next to me. I remember her not being fine. I remember that she was frazzled and panicked. But I suppose to him, it looked very calm. John's crimes are not victimless. They're not. And I'm conscious that I was okay. I can't speak for every teller who came by in his time. Like maybe there was lots of them who were traumatised by it. And I would imagine they probably were because I suppose I had the benefit of him being caught on the day and I knew he's gone away to jail. Now that you know the full backstory Mm -hmm. to what happened that day, how does it make you feel knowing that in no small way you were one of the people who brought down John O'Hegarty? Regardless of when he came in or who was coming in or like what day or who was on the desk, he was he was coming and they were going to lift him that day, weren't they? They were waiting on him. By slipping the dye pack in, you definitely contributed to him getting caught. He did it himself. He walked in and he did it and he knew there was a problem and he still went for it. So he was the master of his own destiny, wasn't he really? Like he could have walked away that day and not been caught, but he chose to come in. So I know he said something like, it was nearly like a cry for help or whatever, but... Like, I mean, he's educated. You can cry for help in other ways than robbing a bank, can't you? He had options and he chose the path less travelled. And I suppose that's his story. Now he has to live with it. Thanks to Aoife Whelan for sharing her memories of the bank robberies. Thanks also to the team behind I'm Not Here to Hurt You, including series producer Garrett Mulhall, executive producer Mary Carroll, sound designer and assistant producer John Smith, and Gavin Hennessy, who helped with additional recordings. Make sure to like and follow the podcast for updates. And finally, thanks to you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75-euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.